Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It's great to have you with us this morning. You know, the prospect of change can be very scary. Because we like to control our lives. We like to think that we've got everything the way we want it. And then all of a sudden, something changes. And we're not sure how we're going to handle that new possibility. That happened to a family, the family of Joseph. They thought they had everything lined up. They thought that they had everything in control. And all of a sudden, Joseph has a dream and everything in their world changed direction. And so what do you do? How do you trust God within this kind of a world? How do you trust God when He is bringing things into your path that you're not expecting, number one, and that you don't see any benefit to? How do you trust when new possibilities are there? When you leave here this morning, there are a couple of different takeaways I want you to go home with. First of all, I want you to understand, as we watch the brothers react to these new possibilities, that there's a better way. That you, you, you can't control your life, so stop trying. I want you to see the devastating consequences of trying to reach in and grab control of people or circumstances because it just leads to hatred and jealousy and estrangement. But on the positive, I want you to take home this idea, that you can always trust God. Even when changes are happening that you don't understand, God is always in it. God understands it, God brought it about, and God knows a plan, and He gets you through it. And so today, we're going to learn how to trust. We're going to learn how to have peace and just leave it at the feet of Christ, everything in our lives. And like Joseph's family, we're going to learn how to trust, even in the frightening prospect of new possibilities. So take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to the narrative of Joseph as we continue this morning in Genesis 37, verse 5. And if you want to grab that Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 31. And if you have the church app, you just touch on media sermon joseph series and there'll be an outline there with points you can just type your notes right into that outline and bring it home with you genesis 37 beginning in verse 5 so we're just starting this journey with joseph and what we're going to see is we're going to see that god's work in this story is not obvious whereas The earlier characters of the Old Testament, the patriarchs, God often confronted them. God often talked right to them. But here, God's work is implicit, it's hidden, and it will take faith to walk through it for Joseph's family. We've also seen already favoritism, hatred, and jealousy. And now a dream will bring it all out. And so as we see God's plan for the family, verse 5 sets the tone. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. They hated him even more. Joseph's dream brings about new 
and frightening possibilities for the family. It will be the dream that is important for us to focus on today and their reaction to the dream. Because the truth of the matter, through this entire narrative, it's the dream that guides the story. The dream is the center of the Joseph narrative. Now, the dream comes in two parts. So you can call it dream number one or dream number two, or you can refer it to as one dream. But the point is, is it guides the story. Because Joseph was a dreamer. This is how God wired him to be. But everything in this narrative pushes against the dream. The brothers, Potiphar's wife, the famine, it all pushes against this dream. But the dream will succeed because it is God's dream. It is God's dream to save Israel, to bring them to Egypt, to grow them into a great nation, to birth Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that he could come and save the world. That's God's dream, and it would not be deterred. Now, the problem with dreams is that they shake the status quo. They, they offer change. People don't like dreamers because they like it the way it is. But in this particular reference, the brothers look at Joseph's dream as a threat to how they've got their lives structured. And we're going to see jealousy, hatred, and anger emerge from this attempt to control. But the dream says it all. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's the first part of the dream. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. The meaning is clear. Joseph would rule over his family. Now, if you look at the, the wording here, sheaves, they're simply stalks of cut or harvested grain. This is an agricultural dream. And that's interesting because it is a famine that would drive the family from Canaan into Egypt. But the dream leaves no doubt in the brother's mind that Joseph would rule over them. Now, if you look at the substance of the dream, it's really important. The first few words of verse 8 offer that. Are you indeed, they say incredulously, are you indeed going to reign over us? Are you indeed going to rule over us? The two key words there are reign and rule. Reign is a royal word used only for the patriarchs, and it literally means to be king. And the word here that he uses that is important is rule. And it's used only of Joseph amongst his brothers, and it's to lord over, to be master of, and to have authority over. So what they're saying is, you're telling us, you're telling us, little brother, that you're going to be king over us, that you're going to master us? What? And so they must have been stunned. 
this new frightening possibility had entered their lives, and they didn't know how to handle that. Now, culturally, it's really important to understand why this would have been so stunning to them. In that culture, in these early Semitic cultures, the father almost always passed the birthright to the oldest son. And so with that came authority over the other siblings. But more importantly, if we go to motive, as you would in the courtroom, that son got twice the inheritance of the other siblings. And Reuben was the one that was supposed to have the birthright. And so, no wonder. Now, the second interesting part of this is we, we know about the robe. We call it a robe. It's really a tunic that was slipped on. And that denoted the favor of the father. It denoted the birthright. Joseph had that tunic. The other brothers didn't. And it would change the role of that person. So Joseph went from being a worker along with his brothers to an intermediary between his father and the brothers. And that lines up because Joseph has the robe. Joseph is bringing a bad report to his brothers. It's like the prodigal son. When the, when the wayward son comes back, the oldest son is incredulous. Why are you doting on this son? And what does the son get? He gets a robe. He gets a ring signifying favor to his father. So culturally, this was insane. And they would have just said, what? What? No wonder they're struggling. So we, we need to give them grace for the struggle. But they don't handle this well, and it gets worse and worse. If you look at the full reaction of the brothers in verse 8, we see this. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The language here that Moses uses is intense. And it doesn't leave anything to the imagination. They hated him even more for his dreams. The dream is divisive because the dream is changing the status quo. And here's what I think is happening. The dream caused a reaction that was harsh because the brothers lost control of the future. They're incredulous because they thought they controlled the future. They had it all set up. Reuben was to gain the birthright. And you didn't change the birthright in that culture. The birthright was the birthright. Now this 11th brother from even a different mother, you're a half-brother, all of a sudden comes to you and says, well, by the way, I had a dream. I'm going to rule over you. Control was slipping away from them. And I believe one of the, the most successful tactics that Satan uses against us, Satan, the enemy of our faith, 
is this idea that somehow we can control our lives. It's an illusion, it's a lie, and it causes us to tear off relationships, it causes us anxiety. We lay awake at night because our plans aren't working. Because we're more focused on our plans than we are on God's plans. And I want you to be free from this. And it it comes in many different ways, and it comes at many different levels. You know, children are a blessing from God. We say that as we wake up at 6 in the morning to feed them, or they crawl in bed with us at 4 a.m., or in my case, as I stumble to the shower over like 400 kids that are laying on the floor of my bedroom. We say, I love you, I love you, you're a blessing, you're a blessing. Then you get in the shower and you go, Lord, thank you for my filthy heart, because I don't know what I was thinking when I was stumbling over those kids. But here's the thing. We, we have come to believe, many of us, that if you teach your children A, B, and C, that somehow your children are going to turn out the way you want them to. And we forget that they are broken people living in a broken world. Somehow we're shocked when our children sin. And so what happens? If we're not careful, bitterness begins to creep in. Anger. Estrangement. We begin to push them away, just like the brothers did to Joseph. Marriage is another area where we struggle with this. When we get married, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I... When I do weddings, I stand by these couples. They're all about 12 years old, it seems like to me. And they, you know, they're staring into each other's eyes. And, you know, it's beautiful and everyone's crying and so forth. And then all of a sudden something happens in that relationship. Somebody begins to disappoint the other or somebody hurts the other. And because we are two broken people living in a broken world this is inevitable but if we're not careful it turns into bitterness and anger and it drives couples apart and either they end up splitting or they shut down and they don't have God at the center of their marriage and all of a sudden we have abandonment issues people are getting hurt just like the brothers friendships too friendships are tricky Because we all have this desire for deep relationship. We all have a desire to know and be known. But when we get into a friendship, it's a risky proposition. Because that friend is broken, that friend will inevitably hurt us. And we will hurt them. And so many times, instead of making it right biblically, we just turn away. And drop that friendship and we go into isolation just like the brothers. And then I I have to throw this in because I see it happen and it frustrates me and it saddens me that this happens in the church world. People attend a church and somehow we believe that we can find a perfect church with perfect people, with perfect sermons, with perfect music perfect relationships, perfect coffee, perfect donuts. We have most of that here, don't you know? But what happens in a church is you're inevitably going to get hurt because the church 
is made up of sinful, broken people. And so people start looking for the, the grass is greener church. It doesn't exist, by the way. And worse, they leave relationships undone at the church they're leaving. They're angry. They hurt the church on their way out. Relationships are shredded just like the brothers. What we need to learn from the brothers is that you can't control your life. This new possibility that had entered their world was scary for sure. Unusual to say the least. But this is God's dream. And they had a choice to make. We're going to seek God in this and try to discover what He has for us. Nothing wrong with being confused. But instead, they take the low road and they begin to hurt the people around them. God is always working. He's always bringing about the best plan. The theme verse is so beautiful. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So control is bondage. God is in control. He loves you. The brothers didn't believe that. Their lives were slipping away. The father is on their side. The family is splitting. But then... It even becomes more acute because Joseph has a parallel dream. Look at this in verse 9. It even becomes clear and more defined. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. The dream this time was celestial. Last time it was agricultural. But this is even more important because ancient cultures understood astronomical signs. They looked at the heavens all of the time. It would have meant something to them. And here's what this dream said. This is a, this is a confirmation of the first dream that Joseph would rule. You have 11 stars, 11 brothers. You have the sun and you have the moon, the parents. And what the dream said is, you are going to rule over all of that clan. And it would have been unmistakable to the brothers and to the father. Jacob would have known, Joseph is going to rule. So there's a choice now to be made. Follow God or get angry and bitter and unfortunately, the brothers chose the latter. First part of verse 10, and then on through to verse 11. And we'll stop in the middle of verse 11. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother which is probably Rachel, she's probably still alive at this point, and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Really, Joseph? And his brothers were jealous of him. Jacob, patriarch, 
carrier of the seed of Christ is incredulous. He, he chides the dream. And his brothers were jealous of him. And his brothers decided to go out and destroy Joseph and destroy the dream. And so we have now this turning point in the story. We have the brothers taking actions. And the brothers' choices would change the course of history. Because what we're going to see through this narrative is the brothers as the killers of the dream, as the antagonists trying to stop the dream, but God not allowing his dream for redemption to die. Because this isn't just about getting Joseph where he wants him. This is about saving a people to bring Messiah into the world, to save the world. And so his brothers begin to try to destroy the dream. And they got jealous. Here's what happens when we try to control situations and people and we get jealous. When it comes to others, we can't enjoy their successes. We we look at them and we're deep inside, we're saying, yeah, that's a great trip you're on. I hope you really have a great time. And then, you you know, you you get them off Facebook because you don't want to look at another picture of Hawaii. Because you're jealous. They drive in with that car that you've always wanted, and you, you know, you're driving this old whatever it is, and you walk up to it, a nice car. And you walk away, it's like, nah, nah, I don't have one of those. You can't enjoy it. And then the other problem is, when it comes to God, God's never good enough for you. So he gives you blessings, but it's never enough, because you always want more. It's like the garden. Eve wanted more. Jesus doesn't want this. Jesus doesn't want us to die inside like this. And so Jesus has a better plan. I want you to keep your finger in Genesis 37. And I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 6 in the New Testament. Keep your finger in Genesis and go over to Matthew 6. This is page 811 if you're using the Bible from the rack in front of you. Matthew 6.25. Jesus taught us to let go. Jesus wants us to trust in His wisdom, to trust in His ways, so that we can be free and so that we can have peace. And here He lays it all out, beginning in verse 25, Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they, don't grow, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of 
little faith. 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. That would be the non-believers. Seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Wow. Don't worry about tomorrow. You've got enough trouble for today. And by the way, if Jesus is taking care of all those, then Jesus will take care of you. The problem is the culture convinces us that we can find peace on our own without Jesus. But he claims to be the only one who can give us peace. John 14 tells us this. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus can give you peace. This is why it's so important to understand who Jesus is. Jesus can make that offer of lasting peace because he is the one who has forgiven you of your sin. Because he is the one that came and took all of the sins of the world on himself and died for that sin. And so when we come to him and we repent of our sins, he can forgive us and he can offer us eternal life. But even more, he can offer us peace now. Sometimes we don't even consider eternal life because we're so wrapped up in what we have here. But as you get older, you start to wrap your head around what eternal life really means. And Jesus is offering that to you right now. Jesus is offering you peace. He's offering you life. Why would you want to be over here trying to control your life, finding all of these emotions of anxiety when you can just go over here and you can rest it at the feet of Christ and say, I love you, I want to follow you, please take control of my life. This is why as a church that we're going to push on and we are going to get our, get our church into the front door of people's homes and their communities through community groups. Yes, we're going to love each other in these groups. Yes, we're going to have deep relationship. Yes, we're going to learn the Bible in these groups. But we are also going to minister to our neighborhoods because our neighbors need to hear about the peace of Jesus Christ. All is not what it seems behind the doors of your neighbors. And I am really excited that many people in this room have already begun to invite their neighbors into a group or over for a barbecue or a dinner in order to get to know them. Why are we doing this? Because people need to meet Jesus. Jesus is the one who can make you secure. And we want to be a church that can be a place where people can come even with disabilities and they can feel loved and cared for and learn about Jesus. We want to be a church that helps make it possible that no matter where you live on the globe, whatever people group you are from, whatever language you speak, that you can meet Jesus. Make 
Jesus known through community impact is not just a saying. It's what we live for. It's what we do. It's who we are. Because people need Christ. The brothers could have turned and said, God help us. But they didn't. And everything began to go wrong. Jealousy, hatred, estrangement, and soon physical harm. But I want you to notice something in in verse 11, back in 37 now. I want you to notice something in verse 11 that is really instrumental in how the story is going to progress. Here are the words at the end of 11. But his father, Jacob, kept the saying in mind. The dreams. The father kept the sayings in mind. Now, maybe he was confused. Maybe he was indignant. Maybe he was still incredulous. But he wasn't quite ready to dismantle the dream. Because Jacob maybe was just that much wiser than his sons. And Moses, with incredible artistry, turns us now to what's next and leaves us hanging. But his father would not... Ignore that dream. So here's what I want you to take with you. We talked about this at the beginning. The narrative moves forward, and we're going to see all kinds of things go wrong. But all along, we're going to see the goodness of God. And we're going to stop and say, do you see this harm and this terrible thing? But God is working. And so here's what I want you to take with you this morning. Just some points for you. Don't try and control new and exciting possibilities. Go with it. Now, it's okay to say, God, I, I don't really understand this. This isn't what I planned. God, this hurts me. God, I'm disappointed. God, I'm afraid. But don't try to control it. Just walk in it and bring God into it with you. Secondly, trust in God's providence. This is a story of a faithful God who never, ever stops bringing about his best plan. You can trust him. Even when the way is cloudy, when you don't know where you're going, just trust God. Thirdly, and this is a a to-do list for you right here, this one. Take an inventory of your life. Take the time to write down the areas or people that you are trying to control. Let the Holy Holy Spirit show you that and make a list And then begin to bring each of those people or circumstances to God and say, I don't want to try to control this anymore. Will you please help me to be free? A couple of months ago, I was having my devotions and I was reading and praying. And um, I felt a prompting from God. Sometimes he'll prompt me and I'll just send a text to somebody and say, I'm praying for you. Or um, I'll send an encouraging note and then get back to praying. And I felt this prompt, and he said, Hey, Paul, do you know this guy? Remember this guy that you've been at odds with for many years? Uh, yeah. Okay, this is going to be a new possibility. Yeah, I remember. And I said, God, but, man, this, this man hurt me so deeply. And God said, I think, Yeah, but... Why don't you release him of this in his older years? 
and allow him to be free from this. You know where he lives. You can get his email address. And so I did. And I sent him a note, and I said, listen, I said, it's been a long time since we've talked. And I just want to tell you that I'm sorry for my part in our relationship. I want to be right with you. I don't want this to hang over us. I didn't know what would happen. I got an email back from him, and he apologized profusely for his part. And I could tell God was just freeing him from this. And now, you know, we're not going to be the best of friends, but we do email back and forth. We can talk freely. It's a beautiful thing. Allow God to free you. Make a list. Pray about it. And go with what Joseph said. For you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is always in it. He's always doing His thing, even in the midst of exciting but really scary possibilities. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that you would just help us all to be free and hopeful and unafraid. And I pray that even as we sing now that you would bring healing, that you would bring hope. For those that are here today that are struggling with grief, that are struggling with abandonment issues, that are struggling over a lack of hope in their lives. I pray as we sing about your goodness and about you always do well and right, that hope would come into their hearts and lives. I pray that they would come to those who are praying here this morning and pour themselves out and be free. And God, would you please make us free as a church? Will you please heal any relationships that have not yet been healed? Will you please prompt us to get right with the people that maybe we're not right with, regardless of whose fault we think it is? And God, thank you for always being faithful. Thank you for being persistent. And thank you for bringing Jesus into the world. And I pray this in his name. Amen.